Hello, and welcome to Living Proof, the teaching ministry of Joseph Castillo. We encourage you to listen to today's message over and over again, so that the Word of God will be in your spirit. Be a blessing, share it with your friends, and we pray that you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We also invite you to visit us online at www.anifbeijing.com. Welcome back. Thank you for the great worship, Asher, Pastor Augustine. Amen. Uh, we're going to be starting today in Matthew 24. And uh, I'm going to record this, this one today on my phone through the audio. And I'm going to podcast it because uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of good information that I want to share. And sometimes... Some of the stuff I've shared here, I didn't remember to share later on during the week, and and unfortunately, people don't get to hear it. And, and some of the stuff we've been into has been very good here. And one thing that the Holy Spirit has always dealt in my life is that for whatever reason, uh, I've always been given sermons and messages that are cutting edge. It's always like the word of the moment, you know. And God's... That's so true, Bishop. Huh? That's so true. I'm going to tell you that. That's so true. Everybody else is starting to talk about this. Like, really? I was listening to Jonathan Ferguson today. Shadowsworth. And this is what I was preaching about. Everything would be talking about last year. Look at that. And it happened like last year with the aliens. I started preaching on aliens in December. People mocked me in the, our church. <laughs> and he said... What is Bishop preaching this for? It's around Christmas season. So how do they see it? And within a week, Prophet Uber Angel was preaching about it. Pastor Chris was preaching about it. Pastor Ted Shuttlesworth was preaching about it. You know, so I've, I've always found, and it's happened more than that. There was a couple other times you said, so-and-so was preaching on this too. So-and-so was preaching on that. So, you know, it's just, uh, it's just, that's kind of cool. You know, I just, I just, I, it's kind of cool because it just, it, it should give me more faith to preach what I'm given by, with conviction, you know, because I see the pattern that is always what God is saying to the church, you know. And so today, uh, we're going to start at Matthew 24. And we started off by teaching from uh, John, Apostle John Eckhart's book on the laying on of hands. You know, we talked about laying out of hands for impartation and for gifting. And then we started talking about laying out of hands for uh, healing and then for deliverance. So we haven't gotten into the healing part yet, which we'll talk more about. But uh, we got into the part of laying out of hands for deliverance. And we came to the point, and I think it was right before all this stuff happened. I think it was right before... 
the uh, Russia, Vladimir Putin, right before he invaded Ukraine. It was like the Sunday before he invaded. He might have invaded them on a Monday night or something like that. I think it was February 22nd. But right before Russia invaded Ukraine, we, we got to this point in our text where the demons cried out and said to Jesus, you are Jesus, the son of God, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, the Messiah, and Jesus rebuked that. And so I proposed the question to our, our, our leaders here. And make no mistake, you are all leaders, you know. Clay, Cynthia, Augustine, you know, in, in this group here, we are all leaders. And as a matter of fact, if we had a platform in the city, we could really, really impact a lot of lives. We have the fire. You have the fire in you. You have the fire in you. You have the fire in you. That's what they don't have here in Tulsa. And the Bible says that in the last days, there will be a famine for the word of God. Now we're in the last days, and we're going to show you here that we might be in the last 10 years of human history right now. The last 7 to 10 years of human history right now. And if that's so, we are in the last days for sure. Even if we're in the last 20 years or 30 years, we're in the last days. And the Bible says that there'll be a famine for the word of God in the last days. How is that possible? In this day and age, how is it possible that Jesus says there's a famine for the word of God? We have bigger churches, more online preaching, more online podcasts, more Christian radio. How could there be a famine for the word of God? May I submit to you today that maybe we have more preaching. Maybe we have bigger churches. Maybe we have more books and bookstores and more Christian materials, but maybe we have less Word of God than ever. The Bible says that in the last days there'll be a famine for the Word of God, so people will go turning to fables and doctrines of men. So is it possible that what we're seeing is a lot of ministry being done and produced, but not a lot of the Word of God? There's a, a famous man of God, a very well-known general of the Lord, a conservative man. But this man prophesied, he said that in the last days, the real church in America will be persecuted by the denominational mainstream megachurches. He said they're going to be persecuted. They're going to be considered radical, and they're going to be uh, even possibly in America, the church be driven underground. Now, I've heard that prophecy now two or three times and, and I haven't given it much, much credence because it's hard for me to see that. I don't see that, so to speak, they say on the tea leaves. You know, they talk about, you know, the psychics would be tea leaves or whatever, you know. I don't see that on the tea leaves, so to speak, you know. But it is very possible that we have a famine for the Word of God. Even the first year we were here having foundation classes, we were having people like Barry and the Montgomerys and Jim Montgomery, people that had been in ministry and graduated from Bible school said, I never knew what repentance meant. I never knew what this meant. I never heard what the Holy Spirit did. I never knew that baptism wasn't just a symbol, that actually it's a death birth. I said, what? You've never heard that? And then even three weeks ago, when I began to teach on the, 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 the dispensation of the Gentiles, you know, everyone here said, I never heard of that before. So there really is, in America, the most 
publishing country in the world that you know that publishes in books and magazines and you know they're really in in the capital Tulsa there even here is a famine for the word of God there's not a famine for preaching but there really is a famine for the word of God so if you guys and also Dave I was just saying there's a lot of fire here in this group here these are not the average Christians. You know, we have the fire, the power, and the word. But what we don't have is the platform. We don't have that platform to really reach like this lady that he went to minister to yesterday. She didn't obviously know about our church for the last two years. We found out that the reason why the demons said Jesus couldn't cast them out because it was not their time. We found out what the demons were referencing was that it was not the time for Christ to return. Jesus Christ returning prior to the end of times was a mystery that was hitting Christ from the very beginning. Mm. The disciples didn't know it. The Jewish people didn't know it. That's why the Jews, by and large, a lot of the Jews rejected Jesus because he was not there to restore the kingdom of Israel. Mm. Remember the prophecy that Gabriel gave. He says... And your son shall sit on the throne of David. That is the throne of Israel. Well, that was never fulfilled. Jesus didn't come to sit on the throne of David then. Mm -hmm. He came to give his life as a sacrifice. And we find the prophecy in Daniel 9 that he came to be cut off. So he would be cut off from the land of the living so that the Gentiles could be saved. This was a mystery that did not understand. But not only did Jesus... Well, the Messiah was not only supposed to come, according to the Jews, they think he's supposed to come one time. He's going to come one time and restore everything and reign in, on the throne. But actually, he came two times. But how many times is Jesus supposed to come, the Messiah? Hmm? One time. Actually, three times. Once he comes to make an end of iniquity, to make an end of sins, to, 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 to bring in the kingdom of God, to bring salvation, give his life so that the Gentile world can be saved. And then the other time he comes to restore the kingdom of Israel, right? But in between those two times, there's another mystery called the catching away, the harpazo in the Greek, the rapture. He comes a third time. And the, the second time is actually another mystery that's been hidden. And that's the time that he comes to meet his bride in the air and take the church with him. So we're going to look at that in a second. And I, wanna, I took some notes here I want to share with you guys. The rapture or the catching away, because the word rapture is not in the Bible, but the word harpazo is in the Greek, it means catching away. The catching away is different. It's not the same event. When the Bible talks about the catching away, it's not the same event as the second coming. How do I know? What is the differences? Can I prove that these are separate events? Because the Catholics, the Orthodox, the Episcopalians, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, most of all the church for 2,000 years has only taught the second coming. They realized that Jesus coming 
the Messiah coming early to die for our sins, they realized that was a mystery that was hid from the ages. But now Christ has come to die and be slain for our sins. They've accepted that. They've been converted to become Christians. But they thought that his next coming would be at the very end, at the second coming. The, the understanding that Christ would come and take his church before the tribulation, that understanding was not necessarily common doctrine around the world in the Syrian church, the Coptic church. That is something that was almost like another mystery. But what are the differences? Can I prove that the rapture is separate than the second coming? Well, I have sought out to prove it this week because as getting into this, this question has come up and a lot of the church is is starting to to, to think about this and talk about this. And so I, I have... Proof here that the second coming is separate from the rapture. And you might want to take notes or try to remember some of this. In the rapture, there is no reference to Satan. In the catching of the bride, the taking away of the church, there's no reference to Satan. But in the second coming, Satan is bound. The Bible says he'll be bound at the second coming. Number two, in the rapture, Jesus comes for his own. But in the second coming, he comes with his own. He comes with the church. He comes with 10,000 of his saints. He comes with his own. But in the rapture, he comes for his own. Thirdly, the rapture, he comes in the air. But in the second coming, he comes to the earth. He actually comes to the earth and establishes his throne in Jerusalem, and he reigns for a thousand years. But in the rapture, he comes in the air to take the saints. And this is where we get to this. In the rapture, he claims his bride. He takes his bride. And in the, in the second coming, he comes with his bride. You see, they're obviously and clearly two different things. Now, it's very interesting that in a Jewish wedding, they have a, a feast that lasts for seven days in a Jewish wedding. And that seven-day period in the Jewish wedding is almost exactly a fitting picture of the seven years of tribulation. That for the seven years of tribulation, there will be a wedding feast in heaven. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And that marriage supper lasts for seven years. Just like a Jewish wedding, the, the wedding feast, the marriage supper of a Jewish wedding, is also seven days. Now, it's interesting because we studied the last two weeks. You know, some of you guys weren't here. But we studied how in, 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 when Daniel, he gives a, Gabriel comes to Daniel. Gabriel comes again, wants to marry. And then he comes again to Daniel. And Gabriel tells Daniel that certain things are going to happen, and he lists them out, and he says they are going to happen in this period of 70 weeks. Now, each week, a week has seven days. Each week actually represents a full year. So the Gabriel, the angel, tells him that a week is seven years. So a physical, natural wedding on earth is seven days, representing seven years. Isn't that interesting? 
So here, in the rapture, only his own see him. In the rapture, only his own see him. Only the church sees him. The world don't see the second, the, the, the second time he returns. But in the final event of the second coming, the Bible says, every eye shall see him. So there's clearly, and there's obviously a major theological difference between when he comes for the church and when he comes in the end to set up his kingdom. One, only his own see him. The next one, everybody will see him. And then lastly, the rapture, the great tribulation begins. And in the second coming, the millennium begins. And for those of you who are not familiar with the millennium, the Bible says that Christ will rule for a millennium. He'll rule for 1,000 years. The millennium is 1,000 years. He'll rule for 1,000 years on earth. So at the second coming, that commences the millennium. But the rapture, that commences the tribulation. Totally different. And I just want to, uh, after you kind of chewed on that for a minute, I want to give you guys a couple more facts. I want you to understand. There are people out there who will debate you. And I'm talking about the Orthodox, the Catholics, the uh, Presbyterians, the Lutherans. Many people will debate you uh, against the rapture and try and teach against the rapture. And one of the things that they'll do is they'll challenge the 490 years that Gabriel gave Daniel. And they'll say that 490 years uh, had to come because there's a... If you count each year as 365 days, there's, it doesn't match. It doesn't fit. So it must have already been fulfilled. But if you actually do a, a light study, you find out that the Jewish people, and, and actually not only the Jewish people, but most of the world, count a year as 360 days. Not 365 days. All throughout the Bible, all throughout the Mishrad, and all throughout the biblical times, they always counted a year as 360 days. And you could do a simple Google search, and you could find out when they changed it to 365 days. But if you actually count the days as the Bible, and as Jehovah and the prophets, they always counted years by 360 days. And if you count the years by 360 days, you find that Christ... When he entered into the eastern gate and they began to praise the Messiah's come, that was the exact day, 483 years earlier, that, that was prophesied that Christ would come into his temple. To the exact day, if you count by the 360-day year. So if anybody ever kind of throws out the numbers don't sink or don't match, I want you to remember that point, that you have to count by 360 years, which is not... Something that somebody made up to make it fit. That is actually the common way that they counted years in the Bible. Jehovah and, and the prophets, they looked at years in a 360-day year. Okay? All right. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, before I get into this, the, the, the 490, let's take a look at Matthew 24 real quick. And I want to let you guys know, when you study the book of Revelation, it's the only book 
that promises a blessing when you read it. It says, Blessed is he that heareth and readeth the words of this prophecy. Yet, Revelation is really not taught in churches. They really stay away from the book of Revelation and they stay away from Revelation, but it's the only book that God promises a blessing when you teach on this. So I'm believing God for even a blessing as we get into this. Amen? Amen. Now, I want to point something out that's very powerful. Let's start off in the beginning, though, so we cover more. Matthew 24, verse 1, says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See you not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus here really prophesies to his disciples that the temple shall be destroyed. And that actually came to pass. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Okay? Now, let's look here at verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when this is going to happen. When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? So they asked him three things. One is, when is that temple going to be destroyed? Number two, what are going to be the signs of your coming? And number three, what are the signs of the end of the world? Okay, so there's three questions here, and Jesus answers them. And Jesus says here, let's look at the answer. Verse 4, he answered them, and he said, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. For you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And they shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then the end shall come. Verse 15. Now, let me just say, uh, this, I don't know where to put it at, but there is a biblical doctrine called eminence. The doctrine of eminence. It's one, uh, one of the main core doctrines of the church, eminence. And I don't think I've heard anybody teach on that. You don't hear churches teach on eminence. But the doctrine of eminence is a foundational apostolic teaching that says that you should expect the Lord's return at any time. The doctrine of eminence says that Christ can return at any time, number one. Number two, 
nothing has to, nothing else has to be fulfilled for Christ to return. He could come at any moment. This was an apostolic doctrine. It was written throughout the whole New Testament. They were told to always be ready that he could return at any moment. So when we're studying prophecy and what's about to happen, we have to make sure that we understand the doctrine of eminence. If we say that this has to happen and that has to happen before he comes, we could miss it. Because the doctrine of eminence clearly taught that at any moment, Christ can return for his bride. And I have missed it in this area. Because I have always stuck with, oh, every country has to hear the gospel before the second coming. And actually, that's not true. Because the rapture could happen at any moment. After the time of the rapture, more people will be saved than ever from the beginning of Christ's ministry until the time of the rapture. After the rapture, more people will be saved. There will be a catching away of the church. People will be wondering what's happening. There will be prophets to arise. There will be 144,000 Jewish evangelists. All Israel will turn to know the Messiah. There's going to be massive global revival after the rapture. Which begs us to question the revival that we're praying for we they don't have any promise in Scripture that it's going to be a pre-rapture revival. The revival that we're praying for, the global revival of the Sutta Nations, could be a post-rapture revival. Because the doctrine of eminence is established by the apostles and the early church and all the church fathers says that there's nothing holding back Christ. He could come at any moment. So whenever we say this has to happen and that has to happen, the Antichrist has to rise, this temple has to be built, none of that's true. All those things could happen after the rapture. You understand that? So that doctrine is actually saying it's the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. That's right. Yeah. It's called the eminency of Christ. He could return at any moment. That's why we're told to always have our lamps ready. That's how we're taught to always live holy and always live like, you know, like, like Christ could return at any moment. That's an essential doctrine. And if you study revival at all, if you study Brown's revival, if you study the First Awakening, Second Great Awakening, every revival, the return of Christ was with the central message preached. And I've always found that fascinating. I've read about Evan Roberts' revival. I've read about the, the, you know, the First Awakening, the Great Awakening. And I, I've read about all these great revivals, the Browns Revival. And they always preaching, Christ is coming back. He's about, and during the Browns Revival, there were a lot of young girls that were having dreams and kids that were having dreams of Christ's return and the, and the moon turning to blood and, and war, 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 and Christ returning. They were having this frequency of these end-time dreams were happening and I thought, what's going on, Lord? I always never understood that. How come when there's great revivals during the Argentinian revival, Argentinian kids were having these dreams, terrifying dreams of, of the return of Christ? Mm. You know, why is that happening? It's, it's the confirmation, it's the witness of the eminence of Christ. The, 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 the spirit of the eminence of Christ always is present in revival. Mm. Because the spirit of revival takes... Our, the natural life that we live and makes it the least important. 
And it takes our relationship with God to be the most important thing. And what makes us more vibrant and serious about Christ and the gospel, willing to leave everything, is that feeling of eminence. Mm. And it was so strong in the early church that people were not sending the kids to school. They were not buying homes. They were not going to work. So, so, so Paul had to admonish them, continue to occupy, continue to work, continue to, to do things while you're here because they understood that he could return at any moment. Mm. So when we lose the doctrine of eminence, we also can easily slip into a Laodicean lukewarm Christianity. <coughs> Amen? So verse 15. Let's continue. I just want to parenthetically insert that for a moment. I just want to cover my bases. Amen. Verse 15. When you therefore see the abomination... Now this is the sign. Okay. This is one of the signs... When you therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Now, does your Bible say, whoso readeth, let him understand? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always thought that meant those who have special knowledge and revelation, those who have eyes to see, ears to hear, those really super Christians, you should understand this. That's what I've always thought. But actually, I, I, through research, I've discovered whoso readeth, let him understand, actually means the opposite. It actually means everybody who reads this, make sure you understand this. So this is actually a commandment of the Lord. God is saying here, everyone who reads this, make sure you understand it. This is not a special thing that only certain spiritual people that have prophetic insight should be able to get. This is an admonishment for us to all really understand this sign. So let me read it again. When you therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet... Stand in the holy place. Everyone reading this, take note. Make sure you understand what I'm saying. That's what it says. Now, number one, there are people who debate and say Daniel did not write the book of Daniel. But Jesus Christ himself said this was spoken by the prophet Daniel. That settles it. Mm-hmm. Daniel, Jesus himself said that Daniel is the one that wrote this. And so now if Jesus is pointing out, number two, pointing towards Daniel, and what he's pointing of is Daniel chapter 9. Jesus is pointing to his disciples the prophecy given by Gabriel in Daniel chapter 9. nine. That means that Daniel chapter 9 is not only one of the most riveting prophecies to mankind and the earth, that it's also the only one that Jesus pointed out to his disciples. Look at what Daniel the prophet said. Mm -hmm. And so the last two weeks we've been looking at exactly what Jesus commanded us to look at. He said, go look at Daniel Mm -hmm. when he prophesied the abomination of desolation in the holy place. 
That is Daniel chapter 9. Now, what's interesting, I'm going to show you this, because there's a lot of people, millions of Christians, that will discredit the rapture, discredit the season that we're living in, take away our sense of eminency, is what it's designed to do, by saying that the abomination of desolation had taken place in Jesus' time. And that the time period that Gabriel gave, that that, po- that was already finished. Because in 70 AD, the Roman emperor had went into the temple and he had erected an idol in the holy place. And this is to erect an idol in the holiest of holies. That is the abomination that makes... Actually, says abomination of desolation. The actual word in the Greek means the abomination that makes desolate. That makes desolate. So... This was not the, in 70 AD, it did happen. But that was not the last time or the first time. It's going to happen again at the building of the second temple. But it also happened during the Maccabean revolt. So they will tell you this was fulfilled in 70 AD. Because look, that's what happened. The the, the emperor went in and he put in an idol inside the temple and and then went in and destroyed the, the, the holy city. But that's not the first time it happened. It happened also in, in uh, you know, I forgot the exact year, but it happened in the B.C. years. It happened with the Maccabean revolt. That's where we get the, the holiday Hanukkah, the Jewish Hanukkah. The, what happened is the, the ruler at that time went in there, put a, 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 an idol in the holy place, and it caused the, the Jewish people who were enslaved to that nation and caused them to get so irate that they overthrew the government and they reestablished the nation of Israel for a short time of period. That was called the Maccabean Revolt. And that was the time when the Maccabees once again took over and ruled Israel before Christ. That happened before even the 483rd year that Daniel prophesied about, or that Gabriel prophesied about in Daniel. So just because it happened again in 70 AD doesn't mean that that was the one time in history that it's happened and that qualifies the total 490 years that we were teaching the last couple of weeks. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So this is one of the main things I really wanted to point out here. Uh, I think the most important thing I wanted to point out, okay? Let's go back to Daniel 9. So Jesus points to Daniel 9 being the most important End time prophecy that we need to be aware of. In Daniel 9, we're given these 70 weeks. Let's let's start at verse 24, Daniel 9, 24. We read it two weeks ago, for those of you that weren't here. We read the whole chapter, but we're going to start today at 24. This is Gabriel speaking. In the beginning of the chapter, Daniel studying the book of Jeremiah. And as of reading the prophecies of Jeremiah, see, because a lot of people will try to say, this is ridiculous, Bishop, this is pointless. Counting the years, counting the days, going over what year this happened, what year here, all that's pointless, all that is, you know, ridiculous. Do we really have to do all that? That's exactly what Daniel did. Daniel was studying the scriptures 
And he counted the days and the years of the prophecy given by Jeremiah. And he turned his face like flint and he began to pray. And one man. Now I know you guys think Daniel's great. And I don't want to take away his greatness as a prophet. But let me not mention to you that the Bible says that the least of you in the kingdom of God is greater than all of the prophets of the past. All the way up to John the Baptist. The least of you are greater than John the Baptist, Elijah, Moses. Do you know why? It's because none of them were born again. None of them were the new creation. None of them had the Holy Spirit inside of them. So from Moses to Elijah to, to, to Daniel, none of, to John the Baptist, none of the Old Testament prophets, because John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Even though he's written about in the New Testament, he actually was an Old Testament prophet. None of them were born again. That's why Ethan, born again, seven years old, is greater than all the prophets of the Old Testament. So here we have Daniel, just a man. Not even born again. One person gets the attention of heaven. And Gabriel comes to speak to him. The argument could even be even, you know, made about the Virgin Mary. One young girl got the attention of God. And, 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 and an angel, an archangel, Gabriel, came to give her a word. God allows us to participate as humans in what he's doing in the universe, in the world, in history. One man, Daniel, was given the privilege to have a private meeting with an archangel from heaven. And this angel comes to him because of his prayers. What could your prayers do? What can your prayers do? Think about that. So this man is praying and God sends Gabriel. He was praying because he studied the years. He studied the dates, just like we're talking about years and dates together. He studied the years, he studied the dates, and he saw it was time for God to move. And the angel came to respond to him and gives him this prophecy that is so riveting that Jesus himself says, you want to know the sign of the end? Read what Daniel said, Jesus says. Go to read what Daniel said of the abomination of desolation. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. This verse 24 is the whole scope, okay? 924. This is a summary of everything that's going to happen. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. And as I said before, the weeks in the Hebrew is the word Shabua. Shabua, S-H-A-B-U-A, Shabua. Shabua means seven years. Seven years. So there's 70 sets of seven years. Totally, that equals 490 years. And two weeks ago, three or four of us pulled out our calculators and tried to calculate it because they're trying to make sure I'm right. Calculate at home, I'm right. <laughs> I've studied this before I came, amen. 
But it's 490 years. 70 times 7. 70 times 7 weeks. 490 years totally. Because each, each day is a year. Are determined upon your people and upon your holy city. And to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision of the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. In the, in the Hebrew it says the most holy place. Speaking about the, the, the temple, holies of holies. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand. He gives them the date, which was actually about 450 B.C. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, because Jerusalem had been destroyed and desolate. So from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah the prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. And the street shall be built again and the wall even in turbulous, troublous times. Now you notice there was two times in history. Prior to this, there was Nehemiah. Nehemiah was given the order to go back and to build the wall. But not the street. The streets referring to the, the whole city, the restoration of the city, okay? So that's why when Nehemiah rebuilding the wall didn't count as the beginning of that prophecy. It was actually the second time that a, a wicked, I think it was Artaxerxes, gave the command to rebuild the city and the wall. It was to do the whole restoration. And the angel Gabriel points that out. He points it out by adding, the street shall be built again. Meaning it's not just going to be Nehemiah's wall. So don't count from that. He's saying count from when the whole city is ordered to be restored. And after three score, so you would never really, if you just read too carefully and too quickly, you, would, you wouldn't see how specific the Holy Spirit actually, and actually this was the angel Gabriel, how Gabriel actually, actually gave a message but also gave no room for misinterpretation. He clarified exactly when it would happen, you know. And it's interesting, and when you study Scripture, you'll find that the Holy Spirit anticipated every false doctrine that would ever come out in the church. And you can prove every false doctrine wrong with Scripture because the Holy Spirit anticipated these things. Amen? And I can give you examples how the Mormon... Doctrine completely destroyed by Scripture. How the Jehovah Witness doctrine is completely destroyed by Scripture. Because the Holy Spirit put in the Bible little words, little sentences on the ends of phrases that completely uh, demolishes what they teach. For example, the Mormons teach that God, Elohim, is a man. But the Scripture says God is not a man. Every false doctrine can be you know, God is not a man that he should lie. He says he's not a man. Elohim is not a man. The entire Mormon doctrine destroyed one or two verses because the Holy Spirit anticipated that these false doctrines would arise. So here we go. And after three score, verse 26, and two weeks the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, 
In other words, he'll be cut off for, for, for all humanity, all the world. And then he goes on to continue with the prophecy. And the people of the prince shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is speaking of the Antichrist people. Okay, They shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with the flood. And unto the end of, of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant, or this word confirm means to enforce the covenant, with many for one week. That week is seven years. And in the midst of this week, in the book of Revelation, it says the same thing. The book of Revelation says in the, after three and a half years, this covenant will be broken. So this is also shown to John. Now, in the Old Testament, do you know that Daniel was called the beloved of God? Daniel was one of the, he was one of the, he was, he was the John of the Old Testament, Daniel. Mm. Isn't that something? The John of the Old Testament, the beloved of God of the Old Testament, was given apocalyptic revelation. And the John of the New Testament was also given apocalyptic revelation. That tells me those that are most intimate with God will receive some of the highest apocalyptic revelations and encounters. And do you know when John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, we've heard that preached for years that that was on Sunday. That was not on a Sunday. What that actually renders in the Greek is that he was in the Spirit and on the day of the Lord. In other words, God took him in the future and he was there on the, 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 the second return of Christ. He was there on the Lord's, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is, is the, 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 the phrase used for the second coming of Christ. The day of the Lord. He said, I was on the Spirit on the day of the Lord. God took me in the Spirit and brought me to the day of the Lord. God also did that with another person. Who is that? Who else did, did God take in the spirits of the day of the Lord? Yeah. Enoch. Enoch said, I saw the Lord coming back with 10,000 of his saints. He was also taken to the day of the Lord. Enoch. Isn't that interesting? I have, I can't prove it to you today, but I've studied that the 24 elders are on the throne. Some of those 24 elders are the apostles. And the man, the elder that comes to John and speaks to him is John in the future. So John is brought there to see himself as an elder and then John walks up himself and speaks to him. I can prove it to you later on. Heard, Isn't that powerful? I, I've heard a preacher also say the same thing that uh, he believes the 24 elders are the 12 uh, patriarchs and the 12 apostles. Yes. He believes that's what it is. And it was John, the elder John, that came to John. Mm. He was caught up to the future to meet him future self. Mm. Isn't that very powerful? <laughs> it's not just for the movies. Hallelujah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but the movies are catching on to some things, oh, yeah. you know. Amen. 
And that one I won't argue with you. I can give you some scriptures reference and show that to you. And you can make your own decision. Okay? Because the Bible doesn't say it's John. But there's reason to believe that that was John's older self in the future. Amen. He'll confirm or affirm the covenant for, with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, just like Revelation tells us, he will cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. So we see here there's another abomination of desolation that will take place. In the middle of the three and a half weeks. So all the millions of Christians and theologians and pastors that will tell you this was all fulfilled in 70 AD, it could not be. Because it was in the middle of a seven-year period. And Christ died the exact days, like 33 or 30 AD, whatever, I think something like that. It, yeah, it would have to be 40 AD that this happened. And this abomination desolation would be in the middle of, this, of the seven years. So it would have had to have been like 36 and a half AD. And it was 70 AD. That what took place on 70 AD was not the abomination desolation prophesied about by Daniel. Proof. Right there. Okay? So now I want to go over a couple of important facts here. And then, and then we'll close. I, I explained to you how there are two separate events. Now this 490 years is quite interesting. Because this is not the first time in Scripture that God used a time period of 490 years. From the time of Exodus to the temple was also 490 years. And I have all the math calculated here. It began at 1 Kings 6, 8. And then was completed in 1 Kings 6, 38. That was 608 years. And then from the time to the temple was another... Uh, period of time that equaled totally 490 years. So that's the first time. The second time, we have Artaxerxes to the second coming. That also is a period of 490 years that I share with you guys about the last couple weeks. So from Artaxerxes to the first time he came was 69 years. And then when Christ returns, it'll start the last seven years. And that'll be the 70th week. 490 years. There's actually four times in scriptures where we see God operated in a period of 490 years. It's quite interesting that God, when he's dealing with times and seasons and prophecies, he does it down to the very exact minute. He is never wrong. Never off. And... That, to me, proves that it is God. Because from the time that Artaxerxes gives the order to rebuild the city and rebuild the wall, to the time that, that Christ enters into Jerusalem is exactly 69 weeks to the day. That is not humanly possible to prophesy something like that. So many hundreds of years in advance. Okay, So it actually happened four times. First time was to Abraham to the Exodus. Second time was Exodus to the temple. Third time was the temple to the Edict of Artaxerxes, which began that, that 490 year period. And then from Artaxerxes to the second coming is not uh, 490 years. All of them being 70 times 7. And I have all the numbers here. I can give you guys a, a slide of the count and all the numbers. 
70 times 7. Now, isn't that interesting how God deals with his church and with the children of Israel 70 times 7? Remember when his apostles came to them and they were dealing with, struggling with forgiving their brother? And they said, how often should we forgive someone who sins against us? What did Jesus say? 70 times 7. 490 years being a time period of grace and forgiveness. But even when Israel missed it, he said, okay, I'll come back again in 490 years and give you another chance. Okay, again, I'll come back in 490 years, give it another chance. Okay, again, I'll come back. God himself, the one who first gave the, the 70 times 7. All throughout history, four times, until the millennial reign, when he'll come back again for his people. Perfect, synchronized to the date, God's everlasting kindness and commitment to his people. Isn't that something? Amen. Amen. So let's, let me just give you this and then we're going to end. I shared some of this with Pastor Augustine yesterday. Many people believe the rapture is a new teaching. Because they say that the teaching of the rapture was started by Margaret MacDonald in 1830. And Margaret MacDonald in 1830, she had this uh, vision of the rapture. It was very popular. She penned it, shared the vision with a man named John Darby. John Darby created a study Bible. And in the study Bible... He laid out the map of what's called dispensationalism. And so he talked about the times of the Gentiles and the dispensations of grace and the dispensation of the church age and the, uh, the, you know, this age and that age and and the Adamic age. And he came up with all this. And this is why people say the doctrine of the rapture actually is only 270 or no, there'll be 70, 170 to 200 years old max. And I believe them. I even told this to Pastor Augustine a couple days ago. I said, yeah, it's only 200 years old, the doctrine. And this is what my friend who is a, he is an academic dean of a theological university in Pentecostal. He told me that. And I said, no, I've heard that before because Charlie told me that and Pastor Reed told me that. And, you know, so I know that that's a new teaching. He said, yeah, it's a new teaching, but I don't believe the rapture most... All theologians really don't believe the rapture, the real ones, you know. Catholics don't believe in it. The Orthodox don't believe in it. And I was like, oh, wow. I, I always thought the rapture was, everyone knew that and believed that. He said, no, it's a new teaching. He said, but it's popular because Zondervan and Whitaker House and all the publishing houses, they're all, they're all dispensationalists. So they all teach that. And they're the most commonly published. And I was like, okay, well, maybe the rapture's not true. Though. Who knows, you know. Maybe I'm just reading it wrong. So I started studying what the Catholics believe and the, you know, so on. But then I discovered that actually uh, the rapture was not first talked about in 1830. In the epistle of Barnabas, written in 100 AD, he talks about a pre-tribulation rapture very clearly in the epistle of Barnabas. I found out that Irenaeus, Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, in his book called Against Heresies, he also taught the rapture thousands of years ago. Uh, also, Hippolytus, one of the church fathers, who was a disciple of Irenaeus, 
in the second century taught a pre-tribulation rapture. Finally, not finally, but also Justin Martyr. Those of you who've been to theology school, you might have heard of Justin Martyr. He wrote a book called The Dialogue with Trifo. T-R-Y-P-H-O. The Dialogue with Trifo. And in that book, he taught on a pre-tribulation rapture. And also Ephraim the Syrian, a theologian from the Syrian church in the 4th century, also taught on the doctrine of a pre-tribulation rapture. It's written by Ephraim of Nisibis in the year 306. He wrote this. For all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come. And they are taken to the Lord. Least they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. And that was written in 300 A.D. by Ephraim of Nisbis. So the pre-tribulation rapture is... And we can even argue it's apostolic because the apostles taught that God should come back with the trump, the son of a trumpet, the dead of Christ rise for us, and them that are alive and shall remain. And we, don't, we, we know that's not the second coming because the second coming, he doesn't take, he brings. He brings the church with him. So it is a solid biblical doctrine that the rapture is real, is coming as to begin the tribulation, and it could happen while we're having our Bible study today. It could happen at any moment. So with how much urgency should we be ready to serve God and share the gospel with everyone that we meet? Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. and just, We thank you for... For even giving us uh, all this information, God, it's it's a blessing to have the early church fathers and and to have what they've written and know what they've written and and just to really clarify this doctrine, Father God, of the rapture and the pre-tribulation rapture and the eminency of Christ, because without these core central apostolic doctrines, Father God, we can fall into passivity, we can fall into lukewarmness, and we can even fall into deception. And you said very clearly, warning about the end times, you gave us a warning to be not deceived. And how can we be not deceived if we don't have this word of God taught, Father? In a time where you said there's a famine for the word and there's a lack of faith on the earth when you return, we need to hear this teaching and this preaching, God, and as Pentecostals, we like to, you know, we like to shout and preach and, and, and do all the emotional stuff, but we need this time of intense training and teaching so we can be doctrinally, scripturally correct, Father God. So when we are challenged, Father God, in the theological spaces that we have a, a, not just an opinion, not just from a movie or, or some kind of left behind book or something, but we know what the Word of God says, what the early church fathers taught, and, and that and knowing that even affects our, our witness, God, and our understanding that the time is short. We need to save and preach and evangelize and reach out, and Father, immediately, Father God, with all the, the, the strength and time that we can muster, Father God, 
We thank you for these things. We praise you. We, we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Let that great revival come. Whether it happens before or even after the rapture, let revival happen, God. Our land desperately needs it. Our nation desperately needs it, God. This country desperately needs it. This city. And Father, we have the fire and the power of the Holy Ghost here. Pastor David, Minister Edwin, and Pastor Augustine, Father God. A great Holy Ghost people like my wife and kids and Cynthia, Father God. And, and we have the, the power and the fire and the doctrine and the knowledge of the Word. But give us space and platform, Father God, to reach souls in this city, Father God. To reach as many people as we possibly can. Give us platform, God. Give us, Father God, reach, Father God. Give us a voice, Father God. In the name of Jesus. Not a voice to be popular in the church and recognized by the other churches and be cool and accepted in the church world by the by the uh, you know the pop culture pastors, God. But give us a voice to the lost. Give us a voice to those that have said, I've been in the desert these last several years in this city. Give us a voice to those who don't know the Lord, God. Give us a voice, God, to those wandering in the woods, homeless, that have been to church and found no satisfaction there and are, are going after uh, peace through drugs because they can't find that in the churches here, God. Give us a voice, God. In the name of Jesus. We beseech thee, O God, give us a voice to reach your people in the power and in the truth of your word will establish them. But give us a voice to reach them in power and see men and women alike both delivered and set free, Father God. In the name of Jesus, thank you for this group of leaders. And let us not just be here to heap upon ourselves, Father God, but let us, Father God, be bread broken for the city. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Searching for men and women of power, men and women that will seek me. 
listening right now and you say Pastor Joey I wanted to pray that prayer if I was there I would have prayed with you I'd like to pray right now as a matter of fact I'd like to give my life to Jesus Christ I would like to have God in my life and I'd like to know Jesus as my Savior and my Lord and surrender my life to him you know repentance means to turn away from your way of doing things and to turn to God's way We've done things our own way, like they used to say in Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. When I did the 12 steps, they said, your best decisions and your best ways of thinking and your best ways to handle life have gotten you to this situation. And now it's time to trust a higher power. Well, there is no higher power than the God of all the earth. His name is Jehovah, and he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And through him, you can turn from your way of doing things to his way. And his way is the right way because he made you. And he made you for a purpose. And he knows exactly what you need to pull out your potential to forgive you of your sins, deliver you from the things that keep you away from God in a sin and death cycle. And if you'd open up your heart to him right now, together with me, God can begin a new work in your life. So just pray with me wherever you're at, whether you're driving your car, whether you're at home, uh, wherever you are, just, just pray with me and repeat after me. Say, Father, I come to you now in the name of Jesus. I ask you to forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me in the blood of Jesus. I believe that your son died for my sins. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. For 
this day forward, I belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You prayed that prayer, I'd like you to contact me and we can send you some more resources and materials that can help you start this new life because this is the first day of the rest of your life. Email me at joe at nationsabroad.com or email the church at nfcontact at gmail.com and we'd love to speak with you and just correspond with you and put you on the right path. Maybe help you find some local churches there online or something. Or maybe we know some pastors there that could follow up with you and help teach you the Word of God. Thank you for listening. And feel free to download the other podcasts and just feed on the Word of God.